Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Always something special doing this show immediately following a Grand Slam. And congratulations to Novak Djokovic on his 15th Grand Slam title. He made a statement. It was comprehensive. It was impressive. A 6-3, 6-2, 6-3 win over Rafa Nadal. I'll spend most of this video digging into that match. Talking about what happened. Talking about what we can infer about the rest of the season from that match. Uh, first, I'll give my thoughts. Then, I left it to you guys to give me some questions, some comments. And there are so many good ones that I can't wait to answer. I answered any single comment that got three likes. I'm going to answer it. That's how I did it. And for the rest of them, I'll reply to them after I'm done with this video. Then, at the very end, I'll do a quick French Open power ranking. I always like to start by finding some historical context for these matches. What can I compare this, this kind of match to? Has this ever happened before? What first came into my head was, this is kind of like 2008. This is kind of like when Rafa destroyed Federer in three blowout sets to win the... 2008 Roland Garros title in the sense that a match like this makes a very strong, powerful, lasting statement, not only in a rivalry, as, as that was kind of a point in the Federer-Nadal rivalry, where it was kind of like Rafa saying, Fed, um, I don't know if you're ever going to beat me on this uh, in this tournament, but also just in the grand scheme of the landscape of men's tennis. Once again, Rafa saying, hey, I'm the king of clay, and I'm about to show that. I think this was Djokovic's version of that match because we were all expecting, or most people were expecting, an ultra-competitive match, and Novak instead decided to make a statement. Before I talk about forehands and backhands and serves and volleys, I want to talk about something that I didn't talk about in my preview. And some people commented, why aren't you talking about this? And the answer to that was, I don't think, or I didn't think, that this was going to play a role in the match. Well, guess what? It played a huge role in the match. I'm talking about the mental game. Djokovic came out onto the court with an incredible calmness, and it showed in his play. He was playing, and you have to understand, playing the beginning, the first couple games of a Grand Slam final, is almost always an incredible nervous time for a player. The first couple games are normally safe tennis or sloppy tennis, one or the other. Very rarely will someone come out onto the court at a Slam final and right off the bat, play blistering tennis. That is a very rare thing. But somehow, Djokovic was so calm that he was able to do it. And on the other side of the court, Rafa seemed overcome with nerves. Why? It's hard to say. First of all, Rafa does that sometimes. He comes out very nervous. I'll talk about why 
maybe he wasn't able to recover from a nervous start. Nervous starts, nothing different for Rafa. Why was this maybe even worse? I don't know. Maybe it's because he hasn't played a close competitive tennis match in over four or five months. I don't know. Here's the thing, though. The reason he could not recover mentally was probably because, one, Djokovic's level was scary. And that probably sucked the belief out of Nadal. And two, he, has, he hasn't beaten Rafa on a surface that isn't clay since 2013, that U.S. Open final. And I think the, the, a combination of those things made it so that after that start, which was a pure dominating start by Djokovic, the reason Rafa never got his head really back into the match was probably had a lot to do with Djokovic's level, but also probably had a lot to do with their recent history. So the the mental aspect was huge in this match. And a huge advantage for Djokovic. Now let's get to the tennis. I have three video clips that I want to use to kind of outline some points. This first clip is really going to showcase... Djokovic's cross-court backhand, which was the best shot on the court, and it's a shot that took over the match, and it's also going to showcase Rafa's movement, which wasn't fast enough for how much time Djokovic was taking away and how much pace Djokovic was putting on his shots. What I want you to watch in this point is how Rafa does not get in the right position for these forehands, does not get behind these forehands. He's not in the spot. That's what footwork is for, to get you in the right spot. He doesn't get to the spot fast enough. Instead, he's reaching for the ball. Instead, he's lunging for the ball, not taking enough steps towards the ball. And Djokovic, with the kind of pace, uh, can, can just continue to punish Rafa in his forehand corner. And then he finishes with this vintage backhand down the line. Now... I th I've always said I think the key for Rafa and the way he had a lot of success in that match at Wimbledon was to take his forehand down the line. You can't, he can't take his forehand down the line with any kind of conviction or effectiveness if he's not in the right spot to play the ball. And Djokovic, in my opinion, was hitting this forehand, I mean, excuse me, his backhand cross court with at the next level of pace and authority. It was such a penetrating shot. And I also think Rafa was slower. And I'm not really sure why. It might have been nerves. Especially this early in the match. Um, I th it, it very well could have been mental. Just having, just being confused out there. Having slow reactions out there. That was, to me... The most perplexing part of Rafa's game was the movement because I'm not sure why he looked as slow as he did. At the same time, he has way less time against an opponent like Djokovic than he would against anyone else. He has less time to get in the right spot, which is kind of what this point uh, lays out. And, and then, but you know, a point like this is basically the point I put up on the wall and say, 
This is why Djokovic has had so much success in this rivalry on fast courts. It's because of points played like this, where his backhand is taking over. Second point I want to make is about Djokovic's speed. So here's another clip. I think that Novak Djokovic had so much spring in his legs in this match, and I thought he was pretty much as quick as I've seen him. And what I think that did to Nadal was it had him really just pressing. And he made a lot of unforced errors, did Rafa. And I think you have to credit a lot of that to Novak's impeccable defense in this match. And Rafa just didn't have the confidence and didn't have the form to string together the kind of shots that can bother Djokovic's defense. But Novak's speed was amazing in this. The third clip and the final clip I want to show is Rafa's is, – is more about Rafa playing poorly and it's a point about his forehand. I want to talk about Rafa's forehand because I said – I mean basically if he wants to win, it, needed to, it needs to be the best weapon on the court. It wasn't even close to that. It wasn't even close to as potent as Djokovic's backhand, which it needs to be. Before I show this clip, let's talk about 2016. If you look at the, num the, the statistics about RPM, rotations per minute, on Nadal's forehand, 2016 was the year where Nadal hit with the most topspin on his forehand out of any year in his career. It was also one of the worst years of Rafa Nadal's career. I believe he dropped as low as number five in the rankings. Which is, it's crazy that that's so terrible in, 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 in the career of Nadal. But for him, it is. When Rafa's not hitting his forehand well, he's brushing up too much. Instead of hitting through the ball, he's hitting up on the ball. And he's hitting with just too much shape. And what happens? It's short. Rafa's forehand was barely passing the service line in this match. And especially when it goes cross-court to Djokovic's backhand, it's pure suicide. I'm not going to show you a cross-court forehand, though. And the cross-court forehands were often way too short and easily attackable. But I want to show you a shot that Rafa has made a living out of flattening it out. Rafa's most flat forehand is inside out. It's when he runs around it and he normally finishes um, not over his left shoulder with the buggy whip which he does more often cross-court, he almost always finishes low over his right shoulder. But watch this forehand. It's a good first serve by Rafa, and Djokovic gets the return in play. Look how much shape he puts on this ball that should have been flat like a rope, flat like a laser. So Rafa was hitting his forehand the way he hits it when he doesn't have any confidence or good feelings. Here's one discussion that I won't entertain. I've kind of mixed it up a little bit. I've made a few points about the, some of the dynamics that were happening in the match. I won't entertain an argument about why this match was a blowout. Was it because Djokovic was playing incredible or was it more because Nadal was playing terrible? The answer is both. And there is just simply no correct side to that dichotomy. There is no correct side to that argument. It is, it takes two to tango. And there is, is nothing more to be said about that.
I think the the one thing that I haven't mentioned about Novak is for the second match in a row, there were an incredibly low number of unforced errors. And Djokovic just never was going to let Rafa back into this match when Rafa was struggling. If Djokovic had a poor stretch where he was really reeling, that could have been enough to to swing the match. Djokovic is so solid, it's never going to happen. So he made nine unforced errors the entire match after making five against Puy, which is just, those are just absurd numbers by Djokovic. I'm looking at some of the other stats, so while we have it up, uh, let's let's talk about it. Um, first serves won by Nadal was only 51%. I don't think that had to do with his first serve. I think that had to do with how he was following up his first serve. Because I thought while his serve wasn't fantastic, I think compared to what he normally gets, gets against Novak... He had three aces, but got probably more free points in the few number of service games that he even really got to play because this was a short match. I thought he got more free points than he normally does. What he couldn't do was follow up his serve off the ground with good tennis. Djokovic, meanwhile, won 84% of his second serves, which is a terrible returning stat by Nadal. You ask me what the best shot on the court was, in my opinion, the best shot on the court, actually, I don't think there's any argument here, it was Djokovic's backhand. Ask me what the worst shot on the court was, it was probably Rafa Nadal's return. Winners, more by Djokovic, less unforced errors. I guess... uh, I think I've hit on, on, on all the stats that I really wanted to look at. Nadal had one break point the entire match. Let's see. Touched on Rafa's movement. Touched on Rafa's forehand. Touched on Rafa's return. Those were all issues for him. For Djokovic, touched on his mental. Touched on his backhand cross. Touched on his quickness. Touched on his consistency. Those were some of the things that I thought just really stood out by Djokovic. Let's get to these comments. There's the thumbnail. Novak celebrating in Rod Laver Arena. Let's read some. Start with Twitter. Now, I, 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 didn't, I got a few Twitter uh, mentions, but m- the YouTube stuff was mostly better. So this is the only thing from Twitter. Um, Do you know Nadal won only 51% of his first serve points in the finals? Just 51%. Any idea of average speed of Nadal's serve in this match compared to previous matches? Didn't bludgeon the ball. The reason I wanted to include this is because um, I this caused me to look it up. So here's the stat for those curious, and you should be curious because this is interesting. Rafa's average first serve speed in this match, 115 miles per hour. Rafa's average first serve speed in the tournament was 117 miles per hour. Slightly down, somewhat significant, not very significant. Oh, I want to point out something about uh, Djokovic's return position. He keeps a foot in the alley and keeps Rafa from going out wide. So him and his team decided that Nadal is not as accurate and potent up the tee as he is going out wide. So let's take away that wide serve and let's just make him go tee, 
and Rafa wasn't really able to make him pay. In fact, most of Rafa's strongest serves in the match were actually still out wide, despite Djokovic's return position. So good job by Djokovic and his team. I don't know why. I mean, everyone playing Nadal needs to do that, and I don't know why everyone doesn't do that. Everyone needs to look at what Djokovic does and copy that. Okay, now to YouTube. Do you think that Rafa could have slash should change something in regards to his approach when playing Novak? Honestly, it's obvious that Novak knows Rafa's shot pattern too good. If yes, what would that be? I think he figured it out, and I just think he couldn't execute it. I think he figured it out in, in Wimbledon that he just needs to take his forehand line all the time, whenever he possibly can. And that just opens up the court for him very nicely. Um, it, I thought it worked for him. Uh, so the thing is, he just couldn't execute that at all. He's got to play better. Before it, it's going to be about tactics, he he would need to play better. Um, he would need to be able to match Djokovic in in movement, in consistency, um, if anything, or, or, or in, in heaviness. He would need to hit his forehand better. So this wasn't about patterns. It really wasn't. Because... It was so far beyond that in terms of the the disparity between these two players' levels that patterns that patterns play a big part when the levels are similar. When the levels aren't close, any pattern Djokovic could have won. Any pattern. I told you, you didn't observe the mental aspect. Djokovic owns Nadal. Nadal lost this match in the locker room. Please speak a little more about this. Uh, I started the video talking about this, and I just completely, I completely admit it, and some people did tell me that the mental aspect was going to play a role. Nadal, in many ways, he did lose this match in the locker room, so I agree with uh, Stefan here, or Stefan. Um... And, and this was not to be understated. I agree. Lost gen or next gen? Who is grabbing a slam first? Uh, I don't even think this is really a question. I think next gen. I mean, Milos isn't close. Kei Nishikori isn't close. Now, Nishikori is going to have good results. But, I mean, physically, the two-week slam thing, it's too hard for Nishikori. It's way too hard if he's not going to ser start serving better or figure out something different because he needs to work way too hard to win tennis matches. He can make quarters, but physically he's not close to winning a slam. Raonic, no. And uh, Dimitrov, not even close. Next gen, for sure. Do you think Rafa played badly or, or sheer brilliance of Joker made it look that way? And do you think Joker is going to challenge Rafa on clay court as well? What are your thoughts on Nole surpassing Fed's record? So for the first question, it's the question that I think is just, I'm not even going to, both, both is the answer. And I, I hate that question, to be honest. The second question, do you think uh, Joker is going to challenge Rafa on clay court as well? Yes. Uh, you'd have to be crazy to think that Djokovic wouldn't, at this point, uh, challenge Rafa. In fact, I think if the match was played tomorrow... It's an important point that it won't be played tomorrow. And I think Nadal needs to hope that he gets to play Djokovic at, on a Masters um, on clay. Because he needs to wash this taste out of his mouth. But if they played on clay best of five tomorrow, 
I really do think Djokovic should be the slight favorite because mentally, and I know Rafa's going to draw confidence from just being on the red dirt, but still, the surface can only affect so much. The surface can only change so much. If this was a close match, then, you know, you can argue, okay, Clay would could make the difference, and Clay probably would make the difference. But when this was such a mental and physical and even just a, a mismatch when it comes to ball striking as well, how could you say that Djokovic wouldn't challenge Rafa on clay? Absolutely resounding yes. Djokovic would challenge Rafa on clay right now. And not only just clay. I mean, best of five, Roland Garros, because we've seen Djokovic beat Rafa on clay just besides one time. We've never seen it um, at the French Open. Again, we've seen it once, but on a consistent basis. What's your thoughts on Nole surpassing Fed's record? My thoughts on that is that it's really so much about longevity, about injury, about how long Novak will be able to play and about how long he'll be able to maintain his level. And these are things that are just so, so, so difficult to predict because it's about DNA and bone structure and a lot of hard work in the gym, but Again, Father Time is undefeated. When will Father Time strike Roger Federer once and for all? When will Father Time strike Rafa Nadal? When will Father Time strike Novak Djokovic? That's why I don't give my opinion on who's going to finish with the most slams because this would be me predicting who is going to break down and when is that going to happen. All three have a chance right now as we stand to finish their careers with the most slams. It's going to come down to longevity. It will. Do you think your analysis was maybe a little bit biased towards Nadal because you got excited with the new aspects of his game? I really like the way you analyze the game in your videos. I just thought in the preview, you really talked mostly about Rafa and what he should do and didn't really uh, specifically what Djokovic could do to win. I didn't think you were purely objective toward both players. Um, and how much do you think the rivalry changes during the clay? I try to talk more evenly about most players. I know I failed to do that in the final preview. Uh, I I did I did talk about how Djokovic could win. I talked about how there's way more margin in his game. I talked about how the game plan that Nadal is trying to, or I thought he needed to execute, is much higher risk, much more difficult to pull off, requires much more spectacular shot making, where Djokovic has a much more uh, higher percentage path to winning tennis. Uh, so I think that there's two kind of ways I would respond. So so one, I think it was just a, a shorter explanation of why Djokovic could win. And I thought Nadal just took me longer to, to make my point. The second thing is Nadal's the challenger here. What does Djokovic need to do to, to win? He needs to do what he's been doing for five years now against Nadal. He's got to do the same thing. And I did make sure to talk about at the beginning of that preview, why Djokovic dominates this head-to-head, -head, 
and it's and I talked about how he has an edge in both cross court patterns, and how Rafa normally doesn't give up the advantage to a righty when uh, they're playing cross court in the ad court. Normally, Rafa will always have that advantage, and he doesn't have that advantage against Djokovic. And then once again, what I failed to mention, and I I know that I should have, and I didn't because I was wrong, was the mental factor. Where you know, I mean, Rafa's incredibly mentally strong, for the most part. Which is why I just thought, okay, it evens out. Where Rafa maybe has some mental weaknesses is, I suppose, just in his in his confidence, which can deteriorate. It did certainly in 2016 was the last time that Rafa's confidence really deteriorated. Um, and then I already talked about the clay. Hey, Gil, please tell us about French Open. Do you think Djokovic has a chance against Nadal? Yeah, I I do. I mean, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to keep doing this French Open power ranking. And right now, I'm going to put Djokovic at number one because I think if they played tomorrow on court Philippe Chatrier, I think you'd have to favor Djokovic if they played tomorrow. So that's why I'm going to put Djokovic number one right now. But as the clay court season progresses, I'm subject to change. Remember in this tournament... I, at the beginning of the tournament, picked Novak Djokovic to win, but I would have been lying to you if I previewed this final and I said, I'm sticking with my pick, because I didn't believe that. The The one thing I will, uh, of course, always promise to do is is be um, 100% honest with you guys. So, just like my pick changed after seeing, after being just convinced by Rafa's overwhelming form leading up to the final, um... Just like I was swayed by that, I'll be watching the, the clay court season and and I'll my opinion will mold and form as the clay court season goes on leading up to Roland Garros. The Australian Open is interesting. I'll take a second before I go to the next question to talk about this. The Aussie Open is so crazy and so, so exciting. This is one of my favorite parts about it, honestly, and some people don't like it for this reason, but we haven't really seen these guys play. So who predicted Novak Djokovic to win the Aussie in 2011? He was probably odds makers and expert, you know, most pundits, third choice to win the Aussie Open. It was probably, well, Federer's the favorite or, you know, then Nadal, then Djokovic. And this was a while ago. I don't actually remember what the sentiment was at the time, but I do know that Novak Djokovic had only one Grand Slam title to his name. Uh, it was at the Aussie. But certainly, people didn't know how invincible Rafa was go or Novak was going to be over the next couple months. Certainly, people didn't know how much Novak did in that offseason to transform himself as a player. And that's what's tough about the Australian Open. That's why I'm, I'm much more prone. You have a much smaller sample size. Um, and that's why, like, it's a lot easier to, to change my picks. And then the second thing I'll say about just picking matches. I, I know I've probably said this before, but I think it's important to kind of go over. Uh, I hope you don't watch me because you think I'm going to pick every tennis match correctly. If that's why you watch me, it's not, it's, it's not going to work out for you. You got to watch me because I'm going to tell you why either player can win. You're going to hopefully uh, have more fun watching the match because I'm going to point out different ways that both players can be successful. And, you know, you're going to watch me because I make you think about the tennis in ways that maybe you wouldn't have thought about it 
before you watched me um, or listened to me. That's what that's what I hope you guys get out of this. I am not a tennis gambling channel. If I were a tennis gambling channel, then you guys could say, Gil, you idiot, you're supposed to be correct every time. Which, by the way, even, even gambling experts aren't always correct. And even if they're correct 55% of the time, they're doing a good job. So I just thought I'd mention that. If you watch me because you think I'm going to be right all the time, bad reason to watch me. Next question. Can Rafa recover and can Rafa fans recover? That's funny. Can Rafa fans? I don't know. You got to tell me. Can you recover? They'll recover um, from this devastating defeat. He put on a brave face for the post-match interview, but he looked pretty bruised slash beat up mentally to me. It's concerning uh, because of not that he lost, but how he lost. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how Rafa deals with this. Now, Nadal has went through similar things in his career at Wimbledon, failing um, a few times in trying to beat Roger Federer. I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, that the 2007 Wimbledon final was a rather heartbreaking one for Rafa, where uh, he lost to, to Federer and cried in the locker room for hours and hours and hours. What did he do the next year? He finally broke through, and he beat Roger Federer in the Wimbledon final. So... He is a, a very resilient guy, and that's evidenced by how he recovers from his injuries. It's evidenced from, really, um, his body of work in his career. How much energy do you think Djokovic will invest in the upcoming Masters 1000s? Do you think it will be worth skipping any for him, um, as slams seem to be his priority now? I don't think so. I think that these Masters tournaments are, are fun for these guys. Very few players on tour have the luxury to say, 500s, 250s, I don't need you. I'll just play the Masters and the slams. Very few players have the luxury to do that. The players who do have the luxury to do that... Uh, such as Djokovic, I think their schedule is quite nice for them. And I don't think there's any reason to skip Masters if you're Djokovic. Is 2019 Djokovic better than 2016 Djokovic? And also, can the Joker win Roland Garros, or will it be Rafa or even Roger? Um, 2019 Djokovic versus 2016 Djokovic. Really tough for me to answer because... We haven't seen that much of 2019 Djokovic. We've only seen two tournaments. So I'm not really sure. I'm going to leave that to the uh, the Nole fans in the comments. Honestly, I, I don't know. If, if I gave you an answer to that, I'd be making it up. Do you think Stan Wawrinka playing his A game will would be able to beat Djokovic right now? And if yes, would he be the only one? I'm not going to get into it right now, but I think tactically on clay, there are um, a lot of um, there are a lot of good things that Stan can do against Djokovic. But at the same time, I don't think Stan will be able to find that high level possibly ever again in his career, um, because now I actually think that Stan has a really good chance of getting back into the top ten because we've seen some really good matches from him. Uh, we've seen him start to hit the ball really well. But if you're going to beat Djokovic, you probably need better movement than Stan will ever possess ever again in his career. 
What do you think it will take for Nadal to become the GOAT? I was actually just talking about this uh, with Jeff Salzenstein on his live earlier this morning. A lot of tennis fans that are more diehard, more invested in it, are a little bit more analytical or intellectual, they will take the GOAT debate beyond the slam count. But the reality is fans will always regard the slam count as the determiner of who will the GOAT be. And whether those people who go beyond that like it or don't like it, think it's unfair. I mean, some people will say it's not fair because there's only one. I mean, this is mostly a Rafa, a Rafa supporter argument, but some people will say it's not fair because only one tournament is on clay and the other two tournaments are, are fast courts where it, it really should be two and two. Right, That would be an example, one example, of an argument that would suggest that the slam count is not a good barometer of who the real greatest of all time is. I just warn you guys, I warn all those fans who think really hard about this, and, and I, you know, it's, I applaud you for it, but in terms of the general overall perception of, of, of tennis fans and who they regard as the GOAT, the slam count will rule. The slam count will reign supreme. Two more, guys. Uh, what are Novak's chances? Actually, one more. What are Novak's chances of winning the calendar slam this year? Really high if he wins the French, but there are going to be, you know, challenges at the French. Clay does not... Clay is probably the, the worst um, suited surface for, for Djokovic. I'll be interested to see... Is Djokovic's endurance to the level that it was 2011 through 2016? That's one thing that I actually haven't seen modern Djokovic, with the exception of, of the Wimbledon semifinal against Nadal. He went deep in that one. With the exception of that, Djokovic really hasn't had to go deep at all. And if you're nitpicking his tournament and you're saying, these are the moments where Djokovic looked vulnerable, I'd have to say that the, the most vulnerable-looking moments for Djokovic was probably when he looked uh, pretty wiped out for, short, for a short stretch against Medvedev there, pretty tired. Um, and then against uh, RBA in Doha, by the way, how impressive is that result now looking back? It was so impressive at the time, but still. Uh, that was another um, match where, where you saw some weariness. So Djokovic, is, it, it might just be kind of those two outlier instances, but uh, I I do want to see, I I am curious to see, is Djokovic's endurance where it, it was? Because definitely what's very clear is his return, his quickness around the court, and his ground strokes are right up there. Before I go, let's take a look at the French Open power rankings. I'm not going to go long on this because, again, three months at the end of every show, I'll update this, and it'll be fun to watch this evolve. I kind of slapped this down. Number 10 is David Gafan, who I think has a nice game on clay. Kena Shikori at number 9, um, coming off his quarterfinal run. Diego Schwartzman, number 8, kind of a clay court specialist. Um, Stefanos Tsitsipas at number 7, obviously uh, has had some really good results on clay. Made Barcelona final and was so impressive. At the Aussie, Marin Cilic at number six, mostly a product of just his uh, Grand Slam consistency and uh, and his general level. Sasha Zverev at five. I still think Clay is his best surface. Federer at four. 
hasn't played it in two years, thinking about playing it this year, or, or saying actually that he will play it. Uh, but I give Dominic Team, who has who has proven that he's a force to be reckoned with on clay. I give him a slight edge um, over Roger Federer. And then at number two, Rafa Nadal, number one, Novak Djokovic, because once again, if they were to play best of five on Philippe Chatrier tomorrow, I would have to favor Novak Djokovic. Um, Juan Martin Del Potro, I just don't know about his health. He'll probably work his way into this uh, top 10 as soon as I, I know about his health. But I expect a lot of movement in these power rankings, and it'll be fun to uh, watch this develop. I want to thank everyone for these two weeks and this Australian Open. It's been incredible. Uh, the growth of my channel has been um, has been really great. I got to start doing more serve breakdowns. That Nadal video did great, uh, so I'll try to do more of those. Um, and I just I really appreciate everyone um, everyone's support, everyone's engagement. I'm uh, humbled and honored, and um, I'll probably take next Monday off, maybe some short videos, but we'll see. So um, until next time, this is uh, this will put a bow on our Australian Open coverage. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe.